Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm so excited you're here. You know, there's a lot more to making a career decision or a pivot than just figuring out what to do next. Now that can be challenging in and of itself, but one topic that we don't talk as much about or maybe as openly about is how to think about the financial implications surrounding a pivot or a potential pivot and how those financial considerations often drive our choices. Few among us are in a position to make career decisions without first thinking about the financial consequences. And for most of us, those considerations become increasingly complex as other people enter or leave our lives. We're all familiar with the term boomerang as it relates to almost adult or adult kids moving back home with their parents. And while I imagine I would be thrilled on the one hand to have my kiddos, Ben and Lane, once they're grown, move back home with me, but that dynamic can present some pretty interesting challenges related to personal finance and often to potential life and career choices, not just for the kids, but for the parents. Now, everyone's situation is different, but today's guest is gonna give you a lot to think about related to this topic and a number of other personal finance considerations that can impact our life and career choices. Friend, as I was reflecting on this conversation this week, it's so interesting that I don't often hear guests talk about the financial aspects of career and life pivots as often. And given the current market volatility right now, coupled with so much churn in the job market, I think there's never been a better time for this particular conversation. So to break all of this down and give us some amazing perspective, I am so excited to welcome today's guest. She is the perfect person for this conversation. Bobby Rebel is a certified financial planner, author, and business journalist. Bobby's latest book is called Launching Financial Grownups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adult Kids Become Everyday Money Smart. Bobby wrote the book for parents, specifically for parents with kids between the ages of 16 and 26. But I'll tell you, parents of all ages and frankly, kids <laughs> will also appreciate Bobby's perspective. 
So how does this conversation relate to building and sustaining influence? Well, sometimes the greatest opportunity that we have to have real influence is under our own roof. And by teaching basic personal finance to your kids, you're not only helping them become more money savvy and gain financial independence, but you're also protecting and investing in your own future. Something that Bobby talks about in this conversation and that I thought was such a smart and oftentimes overlooked dimension. Now, those decisions and how we parent, especially in this particular stage that Bobby's talking about, can also directly impact our own career choices, whether we take a step back and maybe pursue a passion that might not be as lucrative, at least at first, or that might require maybe a significant upfront investment of time and money. For some parents whose children remain dependent for longer, that fact will absolutely impact those choices. Now, one caveat here, you don't need to be a parent of almost grown kids to appreciate this conversation. Bobby also shares such great perspective from her own career journey, including a number of important life lessons, um, including an interesting take on a career and life mistake that she had that we can all learn from. I think you'll appreciate how so much of Bobby's advice comes not only from her own experience and her own journey, but also from a broad array of successful business people that she's had a chance to talk to for both of her books, including the first book, which is entitled How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. It's terrific, so I highly recommend it as well. I have included links to both of Bobby's books in the show notes for this episode, episode 199. I've also included a full transcript and some other takeaways from the conversation that I think you'll find really useful. Remember, friend, I also share clips and additional perspective from these conversations on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and sometimes Twitter. So be sure to follow me on all of those platforms. You'll find me at Laura Cox Kaplan. And now here is part one of my two-part conversation with Bobby Rebel. Bobby, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast and such a fan of so many of your guests that I'm honored to be among them. Oh, thank you so much. I think you and I were connected through the amazing Susan McPherson, as we talked about before we got started, and she is terrific. Yes, sending you love, Susan. <laughs> so Bobby, let's start, if we could, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am, I'm gonna say this, I'm first and foremost a wife and mother of three. I have a blended family. I live in New York City and my kids are 25, 22 and 14. And we have a wonderful life, but we've had a lot of the usual experiences that many families have had, including my career pivots, which we're gonna be talking about. I started out um, after graduating, I worked at CNBC as a news associate in business news. I moved on to CNN and then I wanted to get on air and I was able to do that at the PBS program, Nightly Business Report. And from there, I became an on-camera reporter at Reuters, which is a global uh, news organization. It's much bigger in, like around the world than in the US, so people aren't necessarily as familiar with it, but a lot of their content um, is sort of what you see that looks generic and they will put, uh, each station will put their individual graphics on it. So I was on a lot of stations 
around the world, even though I worked for one company. And that was a great experience. I also was able to write a personal finance column. And I left there in, um, gosh, 2017. It's hard to believe it's been five years when I wrote my first book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, and my second book, Launching Financial Grown-Ups, Live Your Richest Life by Helping Your Almost Adult Kids Become Everyday Money Smart, was released in March of 2022. Yeah, congratulations. That's amazing. I know that both books draw on your rich experience, your first book from having an opportunity to tap into the wisdom of so many people that you were able to interview and get their thoughts on how to be a financial grown-up. But then more recently, this latest book, you've really tapped into both your personal experience as a parent of kids, young adults who were you were starting to launch into the world. Let's talk, Bobby, for a second to just level set our audience about what's different. Everybody knows that the world is different, but from a personal finance standpoint, maybe uh, dive into what's changed the most. Well, so much has changed and young adults are facing very different challenges than you and I did. I'm a Gen Xer. I presume you are as well. And when we came of age, um, you know, some of us, it was a recession. I'm not going to say it was easy. It definitely was not. But there was a lot less student debt to begin with. So we usually started out maybe not with a completely clean slate financially, but we were generally in better shape than the current generation. We also, while we faced a world where there weren't necessarily the pension plans and as much structure and corporate support as there had been for our predecessors, we still had a world where There was an expectation that with a job, you would have health insurance, you would have retirement plans, even if they were defined contribution like a 401k instead of defined benefit like a pension, there was an expectation of this sort of support network. And we also went to work pretty much five days a week. And part of that was developing a work family. We joked about things like, oh, this is my work wife. This is my work husband, because it did in many ways mimic a family support system. You, Mm -hmm. in many cases, we moved from college where we had this sort of friends family that I joke, I say that, but it's kind of reflected in sitcoms and such of that era. And so we moved from our parents' home to college where we had that support system. And then we moved into a workplace where we sort of made our work friends and we would have lunch with our work friends and we had that support system. Well, that structure has really evolved and really to a large degree isn't there anymore. Many of our children graduate, first of all, with a ton of debt. They've seen us get into credit card problems, credit debt, and so they're very wary of credit cards. That wariness creates a whole different set of how are we going to get them ready to be able to make big purchases in life because there's a lot of fear of credit because they already have this this burden of debt very often. There used to be a stigma to moving home after graduation. Now Mm -hmm. that's considered a positive because you can often bank some money pay down your debt and get a better sort of start in life with a better financial foundation. But one of the biggest changes is that the workplace is not the next level of sort of family that it used to be because we have the gig economy, because we're not going into work in person five days a week, because they're not giving our young people the same corporate benefits. Now, it's good that we do have the um, ACA, also known as Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. So there is a form of health insurance. And it is good that we can keep our children on our health insurance till age 26. But this has all created a shift and a delay to some degree of adulthood. Because just taking what I just mentioned, the fact that our children can be on our health insurance and often are until age 26. Well, from a financial perspective, 
that creates a tie between parent and child until age 26, when it used to be, at least in general, there was an expectation, not always happening, that that financial tie would start to loosen by age 18, maybe 22 when they graduated college, then they would be on their own. That's not to say they wouldn't get a little help, but the norm would be that they would have an apartment, maybe with roommates, some form of housing that wasn't moving back home. And that's really changed our perspective. It's kept families closer. There are definitely some benefits to it. Right. But from a financial standpoint, it really does delay financial separation of the generations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many considerations as it relates to that. I really want to dig into this, this concept of the boomerang and a number of things that you talk about in your latest book, Launching Financial Grownups, that I really want to dig into as it relates to how you navigate things like who pays for what? Do you negotiate that with your children, with your sort of almost grown or essentially grown children when they're moving in? Do they pay part of the electric bill? Do they like which pieces do they contribute to? And how do you go about coming up with a plan for that? First of all, I would take away the word negotiate. If they are financially dependent on you, you are the decision maker. Mm. You can discuss it with them. You can listen to their point of view. You can adjust based on their suggestions. But I personally believe that if you are the one paying, you are the one paying, mm. right? Mm -hmm. We had our, our, our son um, that was just recently graduated college, but when he started college in New York City, it was very tricky because it was ridiculously expensive. And there was really not a lot that he could do to control his expenses. He was not a big spender. But we did say, okay, we are going to give you the amount of money you need um, because he was, and we, we were able to do this. He was working, but he, we wanted him to put that money into investing and we were going to pay his expenses, at least for the time being. And we said, our only ask is that you tell us where, where the money goes. We want to report and then we will adjust if we feel that we don't like where it's going. But to start out, since we don't even know, we, we don't want to pick an arbitrary number. We want to see realistically what it takes to live as a college kid in New York city. Mm -hmm. And he got very upset. He says, you're making me feel like I'm dependent on you. <laughs> now think about that. I am. He's like 18, 19 years old at this point, and he's complete and we're paying for everything. Wow. But he was he wanted that independence. But I think that's interesting. The kids have this feeling like they want to be independent. And we tend to pull them back and say, no, we're gonna keep you dependent on us. We should let them have that independence they're striving for. That said, we should call them out when they are dependent. Yeah. and make it very clear that if we are paying, we're not negotiating, we are paying. And they need to respect that it's our money. And if it's our money, we can direct where it's going. If yeah. we give him a gift of money, then we have to let him decide where it's going. But there's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Would you have sort of managed that expectation, if you will, a little bit differently going forward? Because I know you have younger children too, but meaning, would you have kind of set the stage for him maybe earlier if you had it to do over again? Or would you do anything different? I would not do anything different. He happens to be very responsible. It was just an interesting thing that came out of his mouth because we realized he did not fully understand that he was dependent on us. And I think that's important, especially when you deal with children that are from very fortunate and privileged backgrounds, that they understand that they are from fortunate and privileged backgrounds and that mm -hmm. they did not earn that money. Right. Because children tend to sometimes, young adult children especially, can feel very entitled if they come from you know, a fortunate background. Right. And it has to be clear to them that they did not earn that money. 
Right. They're very fortunate, but they didn't earn that money. And that there's an expectation that whatever lifestyle they want to lead, they will be responsible for funding that lifestyle. And I have seen a lot of wealthy kids say, well, I'm not materialistic from a very materialistic you know, position, <laughs> right? Not really fully understanding that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with giving your kid money as long as they understand that they didn't earn it and that you love them and you believe in them and you know that they can earn it in the future, but that's not the life stage he was in right now. We didn't expect him to go out and earn that money. We expected him to go to college and be respectful of our money. <laughs> and when the, when the time came to earn his own money, and he's doing that. He has a very strong understanding. He just graduated. He knows that he has to earn his own money that will be there for him as a backstop, but that we fully expect no matter, it's, it's irrelevant what our resources are. Yeah. That may come to him at some point in his life, will be a safety net for him. But at the end of the day, he's going to make his own career path. And we believe in him enough to know that he's going to do that. We're confident that he can do that. And we want to give him that confidence in himself. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about this. I don't know if you call it a trend, but but it's a sort of a mindset with the current generation around helicoptering. Um, yes. And I and I feel like there's more awareness about the dangers of all of this. But let's talk about what happens when you have this parenting approach, this helicoptering parenting approach, of protecting them from everything to trying to ultimately launch them or navigating a boomerang situation where they come home. Let's talk about sort of the culmination of these things and why it can be dangerous for the parents' uh, sort of personal financial future as well as the child's or young adult. So I love this question because I very purposely wrote this book for parents and I get very frustrated as the book has come out because occasionally people will, um, and again, with the best intentions, think this book is for the children. This is for the parents. <laughs> right. Because this, what I'm addressing is a problem from the parents that becomes a problem for the children, of course, but it's for us that we need to look at ourselves and look at our behavior and look, as you say so accurately, at the consequences. Because if we don't let our children know that we believe in them and give them the confidence to know that they can build their own life and be self-sufficient, again, with our love, with our support, with us there as a backstop, just like they should be a backstop for us, by the way, we have to let them know that they can do it. And when we go in and save the day all the time, we are telling them we don't think they can figure it out. We're also telling them we don't think they deserve the consequences. And one of the, the experts in my book will say, you know what, my kid broke the law. He was driving with a driver's permit, not a full license. And I let him suffer the cons. I didn't interfere and try. She was a lawyer. She could have maybe, you know, pulled some strings and done something to whatever the consequences were. No, she let him suffer the legal consequences, even though it meant she had to then drive him around because he couldn't drive. So it was inconvenient for her, <laughs> but she had to let him feel the consequence of losing the privilege of driving in order to teach him that she wasn't going to bail him out and that he chose to break the law and he was going to suffer the consequences. And very often, one of the harder things is that it's harder on us mm -hmm. to not interfere. It would be easier for us to get in the middle with their professor and lobby for that better grade because then they'll maybe have a better shot at whatever job they want down the road. But ultimately, that undermines them because it tells them that they don't have to suffer the consequences of their mistake or that they are always going to be rescued. And that's a very, that's a very bad message. 
it also, and what you're alluding to in your question, can have financial repercussions down the road because if right. our children cannot support themselves and are a continued drain on our resources, that will impact our ability to be financially self-sufficient in our later years when we may not be able to earn as much money as we are now. I mean, Gen Xers, we're generally in our 50s, we're, I hope many of us are at, at you know, generally peak earning years. We feel good, we feel healthy, it's great. Our kids are, you know, in this early adolescence, so we're not in the, the heart of the, you know, childbearing years where you're changing diapers and such. But make no mistake, we are going to get older. And many of us will retire in our 60s and 70s. Many of us may retire earlier than we want to. I don't have the statistics. I'm not an expert in this area, but you're nodding your head. Maybe you can put it in the tag. There are stats. Many people retire earlier than they want to mm -hmm. for various reasons. Maybe they get pushed out of the workplace. Maybe they get a, a disability. So we have to be prepared to take care of ourselves. And if we are still taking care of our children, that can really undermine our ability to take care of ourselves. We also want to make sure in a pinch, not only that our kids can take care of them, we might need our kids to take care of us. Right. So it becomes very, I'm getting upset if people can't really see us because we're just recording on audio, but I get very upset worrying about what if someone's kid can't take care of them. You need them to be able to take care of you as well. It goes, mm -hmm. it's a full family ecosystem. And that's one of the things that I talk about in the book is making sure your children understand that you need them to step up later in life potentially. And really making that investment in them much earlier, right? Not just before you launch them into college, but much earlier. Bobby, talk about your recommendation for when you start, like when and how you start with younger kids, because you can't just wait until they're graduating from high school and say, okay, sit down, let's make a budget. Let's, you know, let's go through all this. You really have to start much sooner. Give me your best recommendation on sort of maybe the best place to start. I think it's important to pay attention to your child and where they're at and when they're ready to hear you mm -hmm. and to absorb the information. Every child is different. Every family's culture is different. So I would look to the things that you are doing that you can include your child on. And it is, again, more work to include them to, than to just leave them at home with a babysitter. But try to bring your child into your life. Bring them to work. Even if work is at home, have them, you know, when it's appropriate with a client, have them sort of understand that you earn money to buy the things that you need in the house. Have them come with you shopping, even if it's not for them, mm -hmm. right? Bring them along and let them see the everyday things. The main focus of my book is not about abstract budgets, et cetera. It's about everyday life. Mm -hmm. So just having them, you know, go to the supermarket with you and tell you the price and help them, have them help decide which product to buy, you know, give them choices, give them decision-making power, um, whatever it is that works for you and your family. I did start this book at age 16 because I do think there are a lot of wonderful books that address younger children. Mm -hmm. One of the experts in my book is a gentleman named Ron Lieber. He wrote um, The Opposite of Spoiled. And so I would highly recommend that for parents of younger children. That's great. I'll include that in the in the show notes. Bobby, I'd love to talk a bit about career pivots. You've been through several in your career. There are 
financial considerations associated yes. with these and making the determination about whether to leave the workforce, whether to dial back, whether to take a break. This typically happens as, you know, as we start having children and the responsibilities associated with that and kind of navigating, okay, I really can't make enough to pay the babysitter. And there's, there's a couple of great examples, I think, in both of your books as it relates to that. Let's talk about that piece and why it can be such a, you know, it's a huge financial question that goes beyond just covering the cost of childcare. Talk about that from your perspective. Thank you for bringing it up in this context, because I think that is very interesting. And I think there's a misperception that it's often, and, and I am, you know, have been relatively high earning. Um, I'm from an upper middle class background, and there's often a misperception that it's the you know the um, more blue collar workers that struggle with this, but the math doesn't work on so many levels. It's not. It's really a universal problem. Maybe not for the uber wealthy, but for almost every working woman, this is a struggle. And here in New York City, I was earning six figures, but when you factor in our tax rate, and again, and I had a husband that also earns money. And the fact that we felt very strongly on a moral basis that, and also legal, obviously, but really moral because a lot of our peer group does not really think this way, um, that we were going to pay our childcare provider um, on the books. And we paid all of the requisite um, insurance that are appropriate. There's disability. I don't remember the specifics, but it, it, it added up quite a bit, sure. all the things to make sure we were in full compliance with New York City laws and giving her paid vacation time, allowing for sick days, not having work on reasonable hours, but always giving her a full-time schedule so she wasn't running around looking for a second job, being accommodative of her two children. When you got done with that, I was breaking even on a cash basis, even as a global business news anchor, believe wow. it or not. Unless I worked overtime, which there was a phase when I worked a lot of overtime, but then I was paying her. So it probably still worked out to not be exact. And I will say, I would joke and I would call it my placeholder job because I felt like I was holding a place in the workforce for myself. Um, and to some degree it was, but I was keeping in line with, you know, I was still, first of all, I was enjoying the career. Let's mm -hmm. not dismiss that. I was interviewing the heads of many corporations, you know, down from, from Bill Gates to Larry Ellison and so on. So I was interviewing, you know, hugely important people, unfortunately, mostly men, but that's a different podcast. Right. <laughs> um, but I was enjoying that. And I also was building up a substantial 401k. I was providing, we did stay on my corporate benefits because I was in a union. So my benefits were carried, were carrying the family. So we had very good health insurance and all those other benefits that came with it. And so I felt it was important to stay with the job for quite a while. And when I finally made the pivot, it wasn't so clear cut what was going to happen financially. We still did need childcare. And what I was able to do is get part-time childcare for my son and that he was in school more. So mm -hmm. that was a shift so that we were able to reduce our childcare costs. And I was only able to leave really. And this, I'm just being honest because a lot of women can't leave their jobs, even if it is, as I say, basically a placeholder job because I had a husband that also had a salary. So we had that as the safety net and his salary was substantially more than mine. And so that allowed me the freedom to be able to take this leap and take this chance, even though we can talk about, I had quite a runway before I did make the leap. I had right. set up a whole other system, which took three years to put in place. 
not only three years, it took even longer because I had, I didn't leave till 2017. I really started this pivot in 2014. I had wanted to do it in 2008 when I had my son and I couldn't because it was a recession and my husband's company imploded. And so his career was rocky, even though he was able to do a lot of stuff, there wasn't the security of a full-time job on his end at that point. He was doing consulting. So we had to stay till the next phase. Yeah. Um, so it is complicated, even from such a wonderfully privileged point of view. Sure, absolutely. Um, Bobby, I'd love for you to talk about how you laid the groundwork. I mean, you knew you wanted to leave. You began to kind of put in place that 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 um, launch pad, if you will, of what that might look like. Maybe talk about what your strategy, your personal strategy looked like. And was it really intentional? Okay, I'm going to be I'm going to be out of here in 3 years. These are the things I have to accomplish. Just talk about your mindset and how you did that. It was 100% intentional and you know, I congrats to anyone that just bumbles into it. I could not. I had to be incredibly strategic. I just had too much on my plate. I had three kids at home sure. and a husband and I couldn't just leave. Especially because we did I did provide the health insurance and I did provide enough money that was sort of topping off my husband's salary. And I don't like to say it that way. But the truth is his salary was enough that we could get by. Mm-hmm. My salary was, and this is, look, it's just reality. My salary was very good, but it was covering the nanny and covering vacations and such by the end. And so, you know, I had that, I couldn't just quit. And I also didn't want to just quit because I had put so much time and energy into a career that really gave me so much um, pride. Mm-hmm. And I was so proud of what I had accomplished and to just quit for no, you know, to just sort of stay home for me wasn't what I wanted to do. At the time I had, I guess he was, my son was seven and the other kids were in high school. So there was still a lot going on. So what I did was I sort of admitted to myself that I didn't know where to begin. So I did what I now in hindsight refer to as a mentor tour. And I basically went through every, you know, business card, everything that I could find, every directory, everyone I'd ever had contact with and thought of who would give me good advice. And I called them up or emailed them, got in contact, whoever was the best way. Sometimes it's LinkedIn, whatever's the best way to reach them. And I did, like I said, it was called, I call it the mentor tour. And I didn't say, can I buy you a coffee and pick your brain? I hate that. When somebody says that to me, I almost get angry because what they're saying is, I think you can't, I'm going, you, they're, they think I care about a free cup of coffee, first of all. Like, I, I know they know they, don't. I know that's sort of not actually true, but like, I really don't need you to purchase coffee for me or to take me out to lunch. Really, my time is worth a lot more than, you know, the $7 coffee and scary. That's what coffee is. Often in New York. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'd rather they just be straightforward and say, can I come to you and ask you for advice? And that's what I did. I would, often, I would say, I would really like your advice. Do you have time for a phone call or even better? Can I come to you? Whatever's convenient for you. I'll come to you your office. I'll meet you. You know, I'll take, you know, you're going to the airport. I'll sit in the car with you to the airport, whatever it is. That's time that you can give me. I would like to just get your advice and just be honest Just say, Mm -hmm. I'm just looking for advice. Don't, and don't pretend that you haven't seen someone in 10 years and you suddenly want to be their best friend and strike up a, a quote, real friendship, right? This is a business call. And people, I think really respected the fact that I said, I want your business advice because I respect you and you've been kind to me in the past. And I, I really admire so much about what you've accomplished in business. Um, and not pretend that it's anything 
but that. And and that's, you know, you want to be courteous and say, how is your family? Of course. But I think being direct and not pretending that, you know, you're, you're just, you know, catching up with them just yeah. because is effective. And yeah. I appreciate that in the reverse. And in fact, pre-pandemic, when I had a workspace, I would actually reserve every Wednesday morning from about nine to noon. Anyone that wanted to come meet with me, I would just say, pick a time from nine to noon and come to my workspace. There's coffee there and I'm happy to sit with you for 45 minutes. Love that. And that's it. And people would come. Yeah. And I was happy because I reserved the time and they were just coming to me. And if they were five minutes late, I'm just sitting there working on my computer. No mm -hmm. problem. If it runs a little late, no problem. We weren't at Starbucks looking for a table. Who's paying for the actual coffee? Who's going up and getting it? Who's holding the seats? Someone's bumping our chairs. Who's looking over my shoulder? It's just you're in an office environment and you're focused on business because that's what you're discussing. All these new digital tools with Zoom and all of that can make yeah. that kind of interaction so much easier, not, not, not so much the interaction, but the scheduling of it so much easier because you just hop on. It's a really yes. smart, thoughtful thing to do. How much of that advice as it related to that point ended up in book number one, How to, how to Be a Financial Grown-Up? Um, a lot of advice. Gosh, the book at this point is six years ago, so it's hard to remember. I mean, I even wrote it eight years ago. What I what I will tell you what one mentor said to me that was the impetus for that book is she said her name is Davia Temin, and this is an example of how very tangential people in your life can really make a huge difference reaching out to them. She had been um, the head of public relations at a company my father had worked at when I was a child, oh, wow. and as a teenager. I guess I expressed some interest in that because somehow I ended up being like an intern slash assistant to her for a couple of events when I was probably maybe late high school, early college. I don't remember, but I would be the one running around holding the microphone for her at different events. You know, what of her little helpers and just that chance, you know, meeting so long ago, I reached out to her and she was so lovely and she had me in her office where she served me coffee and we sat in her office. And she gave me advice and she said, what sets you apart from other people? You say you want to do something in more personal finance. I was doing a lot of investing advice. At the, at the, the news I covered was all the Fed and the stock market and earnings mm -hmm. reports. She said, you want to do something that's more personal. What do you offer that no one else can get to? I said, well, I know a lot of really famous business people. And uh, they're not always them directly, but their publicists will take my call. And she said, well, then tap into that you know a lot of famous business people. And so I came up with this concept. I said, they're not gonna wanna do these full big interviews with me, but I bet they would each answer two questions. If I just give their publicist or them directly, depending on the relationship, two questions to answer, I bet they answer it. And shockingly, they did. I yeah. got very few rejections and a lot of them gave me very insightful answers. And a lot of them were so happy to be included in a project like this because it was very refreshing. I wasn't grilling them about their earnings report. I mean, one of the most wonderful people in the book was a guy named Terry Lundgren. He was the head of Macy's at the time. Right. And I had interviewed him every holiday season about Macy's and what they were doing. And I called him as publicist. I said, I got this side project, has nothing to do with Reuters. We were always very clear. I worked with the ethics department at Reuters to make sure there was that boundary. I said, it won't have any ramifications. If he doesn't want to do it, that's fine. But here's what it is. And he said, sounds interesting. I'll bring it to him. And, you know, a couple hours later, the guy popped on a call with me and I just recorded it. And it's, you know, they were so gracious. Yeah. And I think the product is something I'm really proud of.
Yeah, it's great. It, the and, and the advice, I think, withstands the test of time. I went back and reread this book, and I would recommend it to anyone who's listening. It is terrific. One of the Thank things you. That I need to reread it. You do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and, well, and the I'm funny gonna... thing with books is you write them, and you know, it came out in 2016. I wrote it in 2014. Right. So it's been a while. Hey, friend, I hope you enjoyed part one of my two-part conversation with Bobby Rebel. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 199, where you'll find additional perspective as well as links to Bobby's books and podcasts and the things we mentioned in the conversation. You will also find a full transcript, which you can download from today's conversation. Next week, we'll pick up right where we left off and we'll talk about why pursuing your passion isn't necessarily the same as pursuing your income. Bobby shares what she considers to be her biggest financial mistake and why the people around us have an outsized impact on our financial future. And of course, we also talk about influence. So be sure to follow or subscribe to She Said, She Said podcast wherever you listen. I am so grateful to have you here and I hope you found this investment of your time worthwhile. If you have a chance, I'd love to hear from you. So send me a message via the link in the show notes or better yet, leave me a review. I'd be so incredibly grateful. Until next week, take care. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.